Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. I would invite you to consider specifically verses 25 through 35 as the basis for the fourth message we'll be doing in this Cornerstone series, specifically looking at how we approach interpreting Scripture at this church. This series is going to be several messages, maybe a couple of more after today, and they are going to span the gap between our conclusion in the book of Hebrews and the beginning of our next book of the Bible, which, if the Lord allows, is going to be the book of James. And so what we would like to do between now and, and then is finish setting some of these very important cornerstones so that it's very clear to each and every person who may be considering our church. Uh, maybe they're watching these messages online. Maybe they're listening to sermons, trying to understand uh, what this church is about. We're trying to give them several messages that they could listen to right at the beginning, uh, really so that we could reveal what we believe. We want to be upfront. We want to disclose that. We're not trying to, to hide what we believe here and teach here. Um, this church may not be the right church for somebody who's looking for a certain kind of church, and we don't want them to discover that several months in and then realize, I don't believe what you believe. We want to be right up front with it. This is what we believe, and we will preach it consistently and without apology. But if that ministers to your soul, then this will be a place where you will feast upon that truth and you will grow. And perhaps one of the most important questions you need to ask when you're considering a church is, how do they interpret the Bible? I guess the first question is, do they even use a Bible, which seems to be optional these days? But let's presume they at least use a Bible. How do they interpret it? How do they approach these scriptures? Are they nothing more than lessons that can somehow be turned into ways to improve your life? Are they just timeless truths that can be pulled out and applied to you to give you some sort of worldly wisdom? Or are they actually the holy, inspired, inerrant revelation of God given to us in written form? In order to consider that this morning, what I'd like to do is begin by giving you sort of a summary statement, and it's in your bulletin, and so if you have that, please refer to it. We've entitled this particular message, True Exposition, because really our interest is how do you take this scripture, interpret it, understand it, and then communicate it? And if we were to put this down into one sentence, it would be this, the goal of every sermon is to preach the truth of Christ in the context of redemptive history. The goal of every sermon is to preach the truth of Christ in the context of redemptive history. Now this is done in two particular steps. The first one is that we want to understand the text in its context. A text of Scripture is never given to us in isolation. It was the great conservationist John Muir who once said, pick up anything in the universe and you will find it attached to everything else. In many ways, you could say that of the Scriptures, pick up anything in the Scriptures and you will find it attached to everything else. 
No matter where you drop in, it is part of a carefully and perfectly constructed timeline of redemptive history. And so as we come before the Lord as an assembled congregation representing His visible church, it is that we might hear from Him. And the only way that we're going to hear from Him at this point is through His Word ministered to us by His Holy Spirit. And so the text itself is vitally important to understand, and the way that you understand the text is to go back into the original language, make sure that you can read it, understand it, translate it, make sure that the words that you are going to bring before the people of God are actually there in the text. Some modern translations like to insert words or remove words. You want to actually make sure that the words of Scripture that you are preaching are the actual words of God. And they exist in a context. Uh, The context is within a chapter and within a book and within a covenant and within a Bible. And you must remember that originally these were not written down with verses and chapters and books. In fact, if you go back into the way they were originally written down, it would be virtually unreadable, not only because it was in a language other than English, but because normally, because of the expense involved, There weren't even spaces between words. The text was just written from corner to corner, filling up every available space on the page. It was jammed in there because they wanted to be able to provide as much of the Scriptures as they could in as compact a version as possible. It was later on in editions of the Scriptures when they were edited, when they were broken down into chapters and then into verses, and therefore sometimes a faithful expositor of the Scriptures won't necessarily end where the chapter ends because sometimes the thought carries over into the next chapter. Those chapter breaks are not inspired. So as we understand the text within the context, it's going to lead us to something, and namely it's truth. The actual truth of God's Word, that is what we're concerned about. The first step is moving from what is actually written on the page to what God means, what He is communicating to us. Now, that really comprises the first of the two pillars. The second one you'll notice in your notes is the truth in Christ. So the text leads us through the understanding of the context to this truth, but secondly, we want to understand that truth in Christ. Text in context, truth in Christ. Once you have that truth, it's not enough to just stop there. There are a lot of people, by the way, who are not even Christians who do a very good job at arriving of the truth of Scripture. Do you understand that? In fact, there are many unbelievers who are, frankly, better in terms of their gifting linguistically, their expertise with the original languages, the breadth of their knowledge of theological systems. You don't have to be a Christian to arrive at the truth. But only a true Christian is going to understand the truth as it relates to Christ. You see, all of this is pointing to Him. The reason why Luke read to you the passage he did from Luke earlier was that Jesus, when He stood up in the synagogue, which was part of His practice as a faithful follower of the law, He would do what would be done every time the gathering occurred, and there would be a reading from the law, and they handed him the book of Isaiah, and he went through that scroll till he found the appropriate place, and then he read it for them, 
And he said, this is the text, here's the context, and now this is what it means because it's all pointing to me. And he says to them, this text has been fulfilled in your hearing. It was all about me. Now, we all have to be able to arrive at that because once we understand the text in context and the truth in Christ, then the significance of that is made real to us and we can see why it matters. Now, I didn't give him proper credit, and I apologize for that, but the diagram in the bottom right-hand corner of your bulletin today comes from a book that was written by Edmund Clowney, and what he did was put this together in a visual form that you might be able to better remember. In this particular case, he's referring to the Old Testament but I believe this would apply now to the New Testament as well. Whether you're reading an old covenant text looking forward to Christ or a new covenant text looking back to Christ, the principle remains the same. From the text, we understand the context or often the symbolism that will lead to the truth. That truth is understood in all of the scope of redemptive history. It is fulfilled in Christ, and the significance then is given to us. There are times where that Old Testament event is interpreted as typology, it's called, and we see the fulfillment in Christ directly. That's why I use the text I did last week from John chapter 3, when Jesus says to Nicodemus, remember that Old Covenant situation where they lifted up the serpent, the bronze serpent in the wilderness? Jesus says, that was me. You see, Jesus says, that was a type of Christ. I'm explaining that to you. Now, as we were discussing in elders' prayer earlier, typology is something that is a little bit difficult to teach about because everyone seems to have a different opinion about it. You know, some people believe that you never really have enough typology. Other people seem to think there's always too much typology. And of course, every individual pastor and preacher believes that he has discovered exactly the right amount of typology and uses it in his church. Everybody who does less doesn't do enough, and everyone who does more does too much. And I confess to you, I probably have that same problem. So, What I prefer to say is that if I'm going to come out with it and I'm going to really hammer it and I really want to talk about it here in a sermon in this church, it really helps for me to have the author or somewhere in the dialogue explain that this really is a type of Christ or it is just so obvious that I don't have to do too much work to convince you that it's there. I feel like the case last week in John chapter 3 was pretty easy because Jesus said that's what it was. But you'll notice here, there are a couple ways in which this is circumvented and it leads to problems. If you go back again to this little diagram, uh, you'll see what can happen. For example, if you just start with the text and you immediately start to preach sermons about it, it lends itself to allegory. You say, what is allegory? Allegory is when you take something concrete and you make some abstract connection to it. You take something and it is only meant to symbolize something much greater than what it really is. And if you're very creative, you can communicate quite effectively with allegory. Perhaps the most famous Christian allegory is a book, Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you have heard of Pilgrim's Progress? The reason that almost every one of you put up your hand is because apart from the Bible, it's the best-selling Christian book of all time. It was written back in the 1600s by John Bunyan. It's an allegory. If you haven't read it, you should. Now, there's another allegory, maybe in the more political realm, written by George Orwell called 1984, no, not 1984, he wrote 1984 as well, Animal Farm is what I'm thinking of. 
Maybe if you were in school and you had a literature uh, class, you had to read Animal Farm. It's an allegory. Have you ever seen the movie The Wizard of Oz? Wizard of Oz is also an allegory. And so what it means is once you understand the meaning of each of these elements, you get to see what the author is really trying to communicate. That is not the way you approach Scripture. God did not communicate through Scripture in a way that forces people who have above-average imaginations to try to make it say something that it doesn't clearly say. Another pitfall is this. You may take the Scriptures at face value and try to understand them in their context, and you arrive at the truth, but that's where you stop. And immediately what you do is bring in something that contemporary people call application, and you say, how are we going to apply this truth to our lives? And you end up with something that is almost always moralism. You unpack the story of somebody like Daniel, and then you end by saying, now how can we all be like Daniel? I came across several examples of this this week. I didn't have to look very far or very hard in order to find it everywhere today in much of big evangelicalism. Series of sermons put out as nothing more than moralistic ways of taking the text and completely circumventing the fulfillment in Christ and just trying to find it some way to make your own life better, your marriage, your finances, your parenting. I have a confession to make. In my flesh, I am a judgmental person. It's one of the ways in which the noetic effect and the residual sin that remains in me manifests itself. And I was driving along earlier in the week, and I was doing something I almost never do, and that is listening to the radio. And that is because I was in a rental car, and I hadn't figured out how to hook up my phone yet. And uh, it was a so-called Christian radio station, and the preacher on this station was, in my estimation, doing such violence to the text, I could find myself getting emotionally angry. I had, like, spiritual road rage. (laughs) I felt like yelling at the radio. And this is a very popular preacher, and it concerns me deeply that As a church body, you're out there in the world not only getting bombarded with clearly demonic influences, but you're also, if you allow yourself, getting bombarded with very poor Christian influences. And not to stretch the analogy too far, but it's almost as if as one who is entrusted by God with the shepherding of the flock, the watching out for the flock, From time to time, as I meet with you, you will tell me some of the symptoms of what's going on, and I say to myself, I I wonder what field they've been grazing in. I wonder what they've been eating. There's an indication that you're sick, and you're sick because you've been taking in very unhealthy food. You've got an unhealthy diet. You've been reading unhealthy books, listening to unhealthy sermons, things that are not based on Scripture not in context, not about Christ, not pointing your eyes to Him and seeing Him as the great fulfillment of everything that you actually need in life and in death. Now, there isn't perhaps a better place where this is unpacked for us than in Luke 24, and our preacher is Jesus, and the example is how He not only interprets but fulfills the Old Covenant. So, with that as introduction, please now turn 
to the inspired text of Scripture, Dr. Luke, volume one of his two-volume inspired work of Luke-Acts, written at the request of a wealthy benefactor named Theophilus. He lays out in very clear, objective, even historical terms the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And as he approaches this section right towards the end of his gospel, the Lord has been crucified and risen from the dead. And it is now the evening of that day when the women came to the tomb and they saw that Christ was not there. And the scene is of these two travelers going back to their town of Emmaus from Jerusalem. And verses 13 through 24 give some of the background of what's going on. They encounter our Lord, as we will see on the road, and they explain everything that has happened. And they are despondent because apparently this one they thought would come and bring in the kingdom turned out not to have been able to succeed. The insurrection failed. The overthrow and rebellion was thwarted. The great leader was killed. And in fact, all along, he demonstrated to them disappointment after disappointment, beginning with his so-called but anything but triumphal entry when he lumbers into town on a donkey. Jesus, in their estimation, had been a gigantic letdown. They had believed, and he hadn't come through. They had trusted him, and he hadn't brought the kingdom. They had taken him at his word, and nothing had happened. And they are wrestling with their own convictions as to whether or not this was all one big mistake. And in the depth of their despair, our Lord ministers to them. And I want to pick up the story here. Jesus, when he begins to speak, brings true exposition, applying everything we've said to this text. And I want you to notice the result. The result in their lives and the result in yours. True exposition will always inform your mind, open your eyes, and warm your heart. It will always inform your mind, open your eyes, and warm your heart. Beginning in verse 25, we see that it will inform your mind. Jesus responds to their statement by saying, and he said to them, O foolish ones. Now that doesn't seem like the best way to build rapport with your hearers. It's a very strong term to use. It would certainly not be something that modern-day students of popular culture and Christianity would recommend. You're not going to find a book written by the Barna Group that says, if you want to grow your church, begin by calling the people foolish. But Jesus wasn't concerned about whether or not he was liked. He was concerned that they understood. 
And he begins by saying, you are foolish ones. It's a word only used here and in Galatians chapter 3. You'll recall when Paul says to the Galatian believers, you foolish Galatians who's bewitched you, what makes you think you can be justified by faith and then grow by simply doing good works of the flesh? The only other place is Titus 3.3. It's a word that literally means to be without thinking. It means to be out of your mind. You're not putting your mind to it. Brothers and sisters, if you're going to learn in church, if you're going to grow through the ministry of the Word, you have to use your mind. You have to be discerning. You have to be careful. You have to be ruthless with how you approach what you let into your mind. I pulled up a copy of a bulletin from a very large church here in San Diego County, and in the application section, the pastor describes exactly what happens when you go into that pitfall of skipping where this fits in with redemptive history in Christ and just go remediately from the truth to moralism, because in this so-called application section, A statement is made, quote, trusting in God's reward system is a daily act of faith, unquote. I just wanted to scribble no across the whole thing. Anytime you instill within people the notion that living for Christ involves any kind of reward system, you undercut the truth of the gospel. Anytime you train up young people in a system that is based on rewards for behavior or accomplishment, you may inadvertently sow into them this thin line of expectation that they're going to live a life that is going to be constantly evaluated by God based on earnings or demerits. Brothers and sisters, You've already maxed out all the demerits you can possibly earn. You're as dematorious as you can be, if that's a word. You see, in the old days, when people were raising up children to be strong champions of the gospel, the catechisms were used in order to draw them to truth and instill that within them, so that on their deathbed, they could recall that which they had learned. Jesus says to them, you have foolishly bought into something that is not true. And not only are you foolish, he goes on to say that you are slow. You all are slow. It's only used here in James chapter 1 verse 19. It means to be deliberate. And while foolishness is definitely a negative term to use for somebody, the word slow here isn't necessarily negative. It's used in James 1 to be slow to anger or slow to speak. It means deliberate, thoughtful. He's saying you are being deliberate, you are being slow, but the problem is you're being slow of heart. You're being slow to believe. The word heart is used 800 times in the Bible, and it's always figurative. It is used of that inner man. The inner person of you is being slow to believe this, and that's where the foolishness sets in. Friends, I would say to you this morning, if you're sitting here and you know for a fact that you have heard this gospel over and over again, and you have refused to believe it, 
you too are being both foolish and slow to respond. And God will not be mocked, and He will not allow that to go on forever. There will come a point in time where that proclamation is no longer available to you. It is appointed for a man once to die and then the judgment. There will be no opportunity after you stand before the Lord at that point and realize everything you've heard is true to then make a profession of faith. There are no post-mortem conversions. And so the preachers of the new covenant were constantly going before the people and saying that while they believe in the eternal covenant, while they believe that God before the foundation of the world has set His electing, electing love upon those who are given to the Son, there is still that universal proclamation of the gospel a call to everybody who hears it that they might come. And that same is happening today. Now, don't be slow of heart to believe or to have faith. And it's not just in what has been going on recently because Jesus says in the rest of the verse, all that the prophets have spoken. You can go all the way back to Deuteronomy 18 where the prophecy is in place that there would come a better Moses, a better prophet, and that would be Christ Himself. And He says, all along this has been pointing to Me. The people in the synagogue didn't get it. Nicodemus didn't get it. So many of the religious leaders didn't get it. That is why the harshest words that Jesus reserves in all of His vocabulary that's recorded for us during His earthly ministry are directed in harshness towards the preachers and the teachers and the religious leaders. He says to them, Woe to you, you hypocrites. Woe to you. That's damnation. Why? Because you are strapping heavy burdens upon the people. When you take the glorious gospel of redemption and you don't show how it's fulfilled in Christ and therefore liberating, freeing, and giving you rest, if you instead turn it into a reward system or a to-do list or how can I improve, then you are saddling the people with law and burden that the gospel never intended. And if Christ were in a physical form in the church today, He would no doubt be standing up and saying, woe to you preachers who are burdening these people with law. Calling it application. I was confessing this to Catherine this morning. I said, you know, probably one of the reasons why I was never comfortable coming up with application questions for my sermons is I just have tried to completely extinguish from my mind this notion of turning something into a law command. Because most of the time I know what people mean. What they mean is, now give us something to do. What do I do now as a result of this? Well, beloved, I would say to you that if we interpret Scripture properly and we interpret the way Christ did, He would say it's not about what you do, it's about what's been done, and therefore your response is not, how much more can I do? It's praise God and thank you and glorify Him and give Him all the praise and honor for what He's accomplished on your behalf. I, I mean, I'm speaking now completely on my own and not quoting Scripture personally. I would much rather be in a church like that. He says to them, verse 26, was it not necessary? He's using a methodical argument here. It's very logical. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, here in the context, should suffer these things and enter into His glory? He says to them, in your understanding of the Old Covenant text, wasn't it necessary for him to suffer first? Are you surprised that he suffered? It says, for example, in Isaiah 53, and he may have gone to this, that there is a point that he would suffer. And as a result of his suffering, he would enter into his glory. 
And then he continues, and at the beginning, with Moses and all the prophets, and you'll notice down in verse 45, also the Psalms, he interpreted. This is a beautiful statement. Beginning with Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, there were three parts to the Old Covenant in the eyes of the ancient Jew. There was the Torah, the law, there were the prophets, and there were the writings. And so what he's saying is that he went through all of that and he interpreted it. The word interpreted here is only here and in Acts chapter 9 verse 36 and in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 where it refers to tongues. The true gift of tongues, the actual spiritual gift of tongues, not the gibberish nonsense that goes on in some charismatic churches today, not the private prayer language that you hear about some places. The actual gift of tongues, which was speaking in an intelligible language to somebody in the corporate gathering of the church who didn't speak the native language so that the gospel could be given to them, that was then interpreted by somebody else in the church so that everyone who spoke that language could also be built up and edified by the evangelism that was going on, that gift. That kind of interpretation is what Jesus does, but taking the old covenant and making it so clear to them he interpreted it. <laughs> and he says here that, that he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I want you to look at the word all there. When I was in college, I went to a school that was certainly of a more Arminian persuasion. And I remember one of the professors who I actually loved very much, but his famous statement to all of us who were moving in a different direction was all means all, and that's all all means. And that was his way of dealing with it. But as a matter of fact, I would have to respectfully disagree. And in this word, all here means each and every, all in the sense of each and every part that applies. And Jesus, therefore, did not find himself in every single verse of the Old Covenant. It's a rather long book, and they only had a few hours on the walk. So Jesus couldn't even have read the Old Covenant in the time it would take for them to get to Emmaus. He wasn't trying to find himself in absolutely every single page of the Old Covenant. But in all the places that applied, one piece at a time, he revealed himself. And the scriptures here were obviously the Old Covenant scriptures because the New Covenant scriptures had not yet been written. What did this do? It informed their mind. Number two, it opened their eyes. Look at verse 28. So they drew near to the village, a word that simply means an unwalled city, to which they were going about seven miles or so, a walk from Jerusalem that was very much elevated, so downhill seven miles to an unwalled village. And Jesus acted as if he were going further. I, I can't resist, but just comment on that for a moment. Isn't that a remarkable statement? Don't you just love that? I mean, release yourself from sort of your pious approach to Scripture and thinking that there couldn't be anything humorous here. This is funny. I mean, I'm persuaded to act it out almost. I won't, but it, it, he totally head fakes them like he's going to go. And, and it says, and I've looked at this, like in the Greek, it still says that. He really did kind of, kind of pretend. Like, he, I, I'm, I'm just going to keep going. And, and they stop him. 
And they implore him. They urge him strongly. This word only appears here and in Acts chapter 16 when Lydia, that strong businesswoman who was a leader of the gathered people who were wishing for the coming of Messiah, whom Paul was able to meet with, just these women by the river, and that was the first church that was planted there. He comes to them, and Lydia has brought them together, and they're praying, and they're looking for Messiah, and Paul comes, and he gives them the gospel, and she's converted, and this businesswoman says to Paul and to the people who were with him, to come and stay with her. And the only other place this word is used is with her, that she prevailed upon them. She was so strong in her urging that the apostle Paul himself said, well, I'm not going to be able to get out of this. Okay, he concedes. (laughs) These people were, were compelling Jesus to stay. Why? Because it was fascinating When you begin to really understand the Word of God for the first time, when you are fed the meat of the Word and not the milk that is so often dispensed, isn't it true that you find yourself wanting more and more and more? You just can't stop learning. You just desire it. Your appetite actually gets stronger and stronger. You say, this is what I've been missing. I don't want to hear another sermon about how to have my best life now. I want to know the Scripture. I just want to know what God said in the context and the truth about Him, and that makes all the difference. And so they say to Him, stay. It's the word abide. Abide with us. For it is towards evening, maybe around 6 p.m., and the day is now far spent. And so he went in, he did abide with them, and when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Now we could spend a lot of time talking about the significance of the word abide, about how it is that this prefigured the fact that very soon Jesus and the Father would send the Spirit to abide permanently within each and every believer. And we could think about that beautiful song, Abide With Me. Fast falls the eventide, the darkness deepens, Lord, with me abide. It's a beautiful song. It's in our hymnal. You should read it, just not while I'm preaching. But Jesus says here that he's going to abide with them, and and he goes on now, we'll notice in verse 30, to do something very important. And while they were at the table, they took the bread, they blessed it, He took it, he broke it, and he gave some to them. Now, this would not have been a Passover meal. Passover was over. This wouldn't have been communion because the Lord had not yet established that in a way that was happening within the early church. Remember, this is the day of his resurrection. So it was the regular meal, but somehow it was during this meal, it was during the time with the bread, as we'll see in a moment, that he revealed himself. It was during that moment Verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Their eyes were opened. True exposition opens your eyes to Christ. True exposition opens your eyes to make you realize it's all about him. It's amazing to me when I hear some people talk about how it's all about Jesus, yet it's never about him. Some people say it's all about him, but it turns out to be all about you or all about the preacher. No, it's all about him and it is all about him. He opened up their eyes. He revealed himself. And at that moment when they made the connection between the Messiah they've been looking for and this risen Lord, he vanished from their sight. 
He had that ability in his resurrected form to vanish from their sight. That's what a glorified body does. It has capabilities that the other bodies like ours don't have. And so at the time when he had accomplished whatever he wanted to with them, he vanished. Their minds were informed, their eyes were opened, and now look to their own testimony. Their hearts were warmed. Verse 32, and they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while, we ta- while he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? If your heart's going to be warmed by something, if your heart's going to burn because of something, may it be because the scriptures are open to you, because you see more clearly what's in them. They say this to one another. Didn't our hearts burn this this inner part of us? Notice back up again in verse 25 where he says that you are slow of heart. Now they're not slow of heart. Their hearts are burning now. Now they see. Now they believe. Now they understand. And it was happening, they notice, even while they're walking on the road as he goes through verse by verse that applied to him and revealed that he was the fulfillment. Maybe he went to the same passage as he did with Nicodemus and said, the bronze serpent in the wilderness, remember that? They say, yeah, I remember that. He says, that was me. Remember the water from the rock? Yep, that was me. All these places where he could reveal himself And it caused their hearts to burn with excitement. And so they rose that very same hour. Maybe it's 9, 10 o'clock at night. And they begin their seven-hour trek back, this time uphill. And they return to Jerusalem very early the next morning. And what do they do? They find the 11. This would be a reference to the apostles, the 11 remaining apostles. Because as you know, Judas had committed suicide. And all of those who were gathered together, namely the other men who were disciples, the women who were disciples, families, maybe children. There was a rather large group still at that time. And they find them all, and I want you to notice in verse 34, because the speaker has changed, okay? Now the antecedent is, is the people that were gathered, the 11 and the others. The dialogue changes. Verse 34, they found all of them, and they were saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. That's another word for Peter. The Lord has arisen and he's appeared to Simon. They come in telling them that this was the Lord who has risen from the dead. We saw him. He ate with us. And they say, yes, we know he's also appeared here. Verse 35, then they told what had happened on the road. These became early teachers explaining to the people the connection within the arc of redemptive history, between all of these Old Testament prophecies and how they are being fulfilled and have been fulfilled in Christ. And it says that it was revealed and made known to them in the breaking of bread. Somehow part of that dinner was this revealing. It may have been something similar to what happened in 1 Corinthians 11. It may have been something similar to what happened when Jesus was explaining to the people in John chapter 6 that they must eat his body and drink his blood to be part of him and him part of them. Maybe he went back and he explained all of these hard teachings that they had heard already, even in his earthly ministry, and began to explain to them how it is that he is the bread from heaven. You see, true exposition, it will always inform your mind, it will always open your eyes, and it will always warm your heart. You know, this is depicted for us every single time we gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is what we're going to do in just a moment. 
when the people were called together as a church. And it's only as a church that you can gather to do the ministry of the Word. True ministry is the ministry of the gospel under the charter and authority of Jesus Christ to preach that, to practice the ordinances, and to conduct church discipline. There might be Christian organizations, parachurch clubs, but the real ministry, an actual ministry, as the word is used in the Bible, applies to what the church does when they gather. And that's why this is so important. If you know anything about church history, you know that there was a lot of debate even between some of the quarterbacks of the different teams, whether it was Luther or Calvin or Zwingli, and they all had a slightly different perspective on exactly what is going on. But I can tell you for certain that they would all agree that this is an ordinance given by our Lord and Savior for the purpose of the visible church gathering to engage in a unique and special opportunity for the Spirit of God to minister to us all of the reminders of the benefits of Christ through these elements of bread and wine. And so as we prepare now to receive that, it is done with hearts filled with gratitude for what He has done for us in Christ. You don't have to worry about whether or not you're worthy to come to this table. What you need to concern yourself with is whether or not you have put your faith in the one who makes you worthy. You don't have to say, have I done enough in order to earn the rewards this week? Have I had enough faith to earn some rewards and ribbons this week? Maybe if I've got enough, then I can come forward and receive this. No, he says, on the one hand, you've actually failed worse than you can possibly imagine, and all of your demerits are filled, but praise be to God that he took and paid for all of those and has clothed you in his righteousness and makes you worthy. Therefore, when I invite you to come forward in a few moments, when you come down these aisles to receive these elements, do so with joy. Feel free to greet one another on the way down. There's going to be a little bit of a traffic jam. That's okay. You don't need to stand there in silence. This is not the DMV. You're allowed to talk to one another. Rejoice. Hug one another. Say, wonderful, I, great to see you. Maybe some of you right-siders should come down the left aisle, and some of you left-siders should come down the right aisle. You might get to meet people you've never seen before, and you've been at the same church for five years. Make this a time of celebration, because what we're celebrating is what Christ revealed about Himself. And if it filled the minds of these two on the road to Emmaus, if it opened up their eyes to His glory, if it made their hearts burn with thanksgiving for everything He has done for them, then may it do the same for us today. Amen? Father in heaven, thank You for this message. Thank You for this truth. And may everyone who stands before the people of this precious church to preach, or who in various contexts and Bible studies opens up the Word to teach, may each and every one of us have these resolute convictions about the truth that is contained here. May we concern ourselves with the text in its historical context, its grammatical context, and what it really means. May we arrive at that precious truth and cherish it, but then protect us from taking some off-ramp into moralism, but instead to stay on the main road that will take us to how this is fulfilled in Christ, and then all of the significance that opens up for us in our preaching and teaching and encouragement. 
May it be what sustains us in life and sustains us in death, because it is what will be the basis of our praise forever. In your name we pray. Amen.